0: Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the next installment of the Rocky Mountain MIREC Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hofberg, and joining me today is Dr. Diana Brosto. Uh, She is a researcher nutritionist with the Rocky Mountain MIREC, and uh, welcome, Diana.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. So glad to have you on the show today. So let's just have you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and why you got into uh, nutrition.
1: Sure. So um, this is my second career. I actually began in the entertainment industry. And uh, way back in 2008, I want to say, I was living in Vancouver. And down the street from the studio where I was working, there was a nutrition school. (laughs) (laughs) And just for fun... I took night classes there, and then I decided I didn't want to become a producer anymore, and I ran away to graduate school. So um, I moved back to the States, and I initially, the the way I always say it is I started in um, epidemiology, so I got my MPH first at the University of Minnesota, and so I started with nutrition at the population level, the global level. And then I decided to keep going to school. And I got my PhD in human nutrition uh, several years after that, and I really focused on nutrition at the, I would say, chronic disease level. So my focus was diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and when I was collecting data with those patient populations, it kept kind of bumping up against this the, the issue, you can call it the mental health issue, the emotional issue. basically. Um, this is going to be really obvious, but food is very personal and very emotional and very primal. Mm-hmm. And so I was completing my dietetics internship, so I'm a registered dietitian. And so much of what we're taught is you have this diagnosis. Don't eat this. Eat this. Don't eat that. Eat that. Why are you noncompliant? Um, as though it were a behavior that you can kind of switch on or off and, and adhere to. So, uh, when I moved here to Denver, um, I started working as a dietitian at our homeless domiciliary in Lakewood. It's called Valor Point. It's a great program, and I got involved also at the same time in a postdoc here in the Health Services Research Division. And I just kept kind of hitting that, that wall internally in myself, this wall of, we have heart disease, we have diabetes, we have all these chronic illnesses. There are dietary approaches to them, but so much of this really comes back to people's relationship with food. And I know that's really a buzz term right now, like, oh, what's your relationship with food? <laughs> but um, there's a lot of blogs out there dedicated to it. But it's it's one way to look at it. Uh, and so when I started looking at food insecurity, which is also a heavily loaded term, um, I started looking really at the mental health aspect. So when I connected with Dr. Lisa Brenner, We figured out that we're both really interested in this, and so when she um, hired me to join the MIREC just a few short months ago, that, that really became the focus of why I'm here, which is the mental health connection to food insecurity and all of that entails.
0: Excellent. We're so happy to have you on board, (laughs) and um, yeah, it's great to have a researcher here with the Rocky Mountain MIREX, sort of specializing and focusing on Mm -hmm. diet and nutrition. So as you mentioned, there's a few terms you you used. uh, Before we get into the subject, I really want to make sure that everyone's on the same page with what is food insecurity, and um, so talk us through that.
1: Sure. So historically, food insecurity, let me go back a little bit, this is my little tangent. So everything that we have right now in terms of nutrition research, whether it's, you know, the best diet to eat for X illness or or what nutrients are in such and such food, a lot of that really didn't start to develop until after World War II. And for most of human history, our biggest problem was getting enough to eat. Um, So nutritional deficiencies like rickets and and, uh, pellagra and goiters from iodine deficiencies we forget that they were really pretty recent and so all of our recommendations um came from these times when we couldn't get enough to eat world war ii came around the grand industrial revolution agriculture came around where you're growing more food than ever before and so it was kind of this like well problem solved we're all good now Um, so obviously that's not true (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so and so, there's food. There's two kinds of food insecurity. There's the food insecurity that I won't be talking about today, which is the kind where you have acute situations due to famine and or warfare. Right. So I'm talking like droughts in sub-Saharan Africa. That if you know, if you were around in the 80s, you remember where you had masses of people starving to death because of a lack of food. I'm not talking about that. Or you have something like the crises right now in Syria and Yemen where because of war you have people who don't have access to food and are starving. Also not talking about that. When I talk about food insecurity, I am talking about um, what now how people are or are not able to access and use food in a way that meets their needs. And that's a really vague way of putting it. Uh, So... So just to clarify, the USDA officially researches food insecurity and quantifies it. And if you ever go on the USDA website for food security, there's a a screener module, there's a six-question version, there's like a 12-question version, it comes in English and Spanish, and and it really focuses on the economic aspect, which is the way we think of food insecurity now, which is, do you have money to buy food, yes or no? Do you ever run out of money to buy food, yes or no? Um, Do you ever worry about running out of food because you've done it before and you're you're concerned it's going to happen, yes or no? And so these are important questions, and they really get at the economic component of food insecurity, which is huge. We have lots of people in the U.S., veterans and non-veterans, who are not getting enough to eat physically. Uh, My goal is to transform our understanding of food insecurity beyond just the physical sensation of hunger. So food insecurity can encompass things like maybe you never technically go hungry. Maybe you eat enough food in a day to feel full. But maybe it's not the kind of food you want to be eating or ought to be eating medically, biologically to meet your needs. Maybe you make a lot of compromises Um, in the nutritional quality of the food you want to be eating. Maybe food insecurity is uh, geographical and environmental. So we, you know, we've probably all heard about food deserts, people living in areas where it's really far and or cumbersome to get to a grocery store. That's food insecurity. Um, So there's all these different components to it. Uh, You know, people who... uh, Get uh, food assistance benefits, let's say, and they get foods they're not familiar with that they don't enjoy, I would argue that that's a component of food insecurity. And so it's really about how we use food, how we access food, how we perceive food. Um, I think that's very important. and And so food insecurity encompasses a lot more than do you have money in your pocket.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly helpful, and I can start to see what you mean by you know yes. the relationship people have with food right. rather than just money in your pocket and buying food. It's not right. that simple. It is not. Great. So uh, so now that we kind of have the landscape of what you're, you mean by food insecurity, let's yes. talk about what we know and sort of what the context is around the relationship between food insecurity and mental health.
1: Sure. So I'm going to talk a lot about the veteran population because that's what I spend a lot of time on. But... Uh, again, I feel like nutrition is, because it's a relatively new science compared to other sciences, uh, I spend a lot of my time stating the obvious that we don't ever think about. So if someone is suffering from depression, we know all the usual uh, archetypal symptoms, right? Maybe they don't want to get out of bed. Maybe they sleep all the time. Maybe they never sleep. Uh, maybe their performance at work or at school or in their relationships is suffering. Uh, We don't really talk about eating. So, uh, and again, this is kind of hello, Captain Obvious, but again, using another buzz term, uh, self-care. If we say self-care is taking care of myself uh, physically and emotionally, you know, in my relationships, in my economic life, um, do I bathe, do I wash my clothes? Nutritional self-care is part of it, and for people who are struggling with some kind of a, a mental illness or a mood disorder, nutrition falls by the wayside. Which is, I would say, a logical reaction, a logical consequence, I should say, to suffering from a mental illness. So it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone that lots and lots of studies show that people with really acute conditions like schizophrenia or, um, or bipolar disorder will have poor nutritional status right Mm -hmm. they are much more likely to have all kinds of illnesses that we associate to at least some degree with diet so whether it's heart disease or diabetes or things like that um and there's a whole bunch of other biological pathways going on with that independently but to to sum it up if you can't take care of yourself you're not going to take care of your nutritional self Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm following you.
1: (laughs) So, and again, that's very much like, well, duh. But uh, we don't think about it a lot. And we often think, and I know and from my own clinical experiences, I remember doing my rotations um, in Minnesota and, and being called, you know, getting a referral to somebody up on the psychiatric ward of the hospital and being told, well, they're not eating. Get them to eat. I was like, oh, okay. Well, guess what? You should eat. Like that, right. Like that's like that's going to do anything. Whatever that person is experiencing, whatever suffering they're going through right now, um, having the dietitian lady come in and say you should really eat what's on your tray. I don't care if you like it. I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care what your mental state is right now. I don't care if you can't stand the sight of me. I, you know, like or or it's just it just felt really absurd to me, um, and so. And then that that if I had gotten somebody to eat, that that would have been success cause I could check the box, that they took a mouthful of whatever was on their tray. And that's, you know, food is much more than that to a lot of people. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, that's a good start. <laughs> um, I, I mean, obviously, we're here today to talk a little bit more about research and how you're exploring this area. So as you mentioned, this is a a developing sort of early in its infancy sort of um, research uh, agenda. So talk to us a little bit about what you're pursuing in your research and how this is adding to what we know.
1: So uh, my interest was piqued because I first started looking at at, um, what's called the Health and Retirement Study. It's the country's largest longitudinal study of aging, um, and it's based out of the University of Michigan. And it's basically people age 50 and older, and they've been tracking them for years and years and years. And in 2013, this was like a one-off survey, they administered a food insecurity survey to all these people. And I did two analyses on them. On one, I looked at veterans versus non-veterans because I wanted to see how this older population of veterans was doing. And it turned out that you know, nationwide in this sample, veterans were had a lower prevalence of food insecurity than the non-veteran population. And it would be easy to say, well, great, that means veterans are doing better, that's awesome. And I was like, yep, yeah, that's, that's what it looks like. Um, and then what I did, I took the uh, veteran population and I split it into uh, 65 and, and older, and then the 50 to 64 range. So I called them my, my older, older, and my younger, older. The older older were doing better in terms of food insecurity, um, you know, they qualify for more assistance, more health care when you're 65, uh, and they still belonged to the generation of veterans who were drafted. So during the draft, you know, they could afford to be a little choosy. They took the healthiest, all of that. Um, the, the 50 to 64 had a really high prevalence of food insecurity. And I started to look at why. And of course, income is important. But after adjusting for income, the biggest predictors of food insecurity in these younger, older veterans were having any kind of a diagnosis of a psychiatric illness, um, having a self report of depression, and having any kind of a functional issue. So if you're familiar with ADLs, the activities of daily living, which are things like dressing yourself, toileting, um, just moving around, having difficulties in any of those was associated with food insecurity, but especially the psychiatric diagnosis. It was exponentially higher. And so then I took that same health and retirement study cohort and I looked at obesity and food insecurity. There's a lot of talk now about obesity um, because policymakers and people interested in health will look at the, the epidemiological data and say, why are all these food insecure people so fat? um and i use the term fat because that's a term they use and it's it's a it's a word i want to regain the power from and not make it a pejorative term
0: thank you yeah <laughs> appreciate that
1: yeah um it's okay to be fat i'm here to tell you that um and so so that you know all the all the headlines would be like why are poor people so fat right that's that was the takeaway message and uh that's a whole other ball of wax you know, there's more obesity. We could go off on a whole tangent on obesity and how um, obesity doesn't always mean what you think it means. It doesn't guarantee the health outcomes that we've always been told to expect. Um, It's often very much tied with mental health. Setting that aside, I was going to look at food insecurity and obesity in this population, specifically the 65 and older. And it turned out that weight status, because I looked at body mass index, and you, know, you have these categories of normal, quote-unquote, overweight, obese, and so on, had nothing to do with their food insecurity. After I adjusted for income, race, ethnicity, education, anything I could think of, it was psychiatric diagnosis and or depression, self-reported depression. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, two studies does not make <laughs> a, a factual uh, correlation but I, was, I thought, you know, there's definitely something here. Absolutely. Um, and so then I started looking at younger veterans, right? Because OEF, OAF, so the post-9-11 veterans, you know, we have more and more. Obviously, we still have an ongoing um, combat engagement. So there's more and more of them every day. Uh, unlike other eras of veterans, they struggle a lot with traumatic brain injuries and PTSD, not to say that other areas didn't have PTSD but it's really manifesting in new ways I would argue in this in this era of of service members and so I wanted to look at the literature and what's happening with food insecurity there and there were like two papers <laughs> <laughs> none of them of like a national cohort but basically the takeaway was that at least twenty seven percent Admitted, quote-unquote, to being food insecure using that economic USDA metric. Uh-huh. So not addressing anything relating to mental health or cognition or function or anything. That's a lot. So uh, the latest USDA stats nationwide say that about 13% of the U.S. population is food insecure to some degree. And uh, over a quarter is is a lot. I, I would argue... That any number is not okay, but when it gets to something that high, that's, to me, that's unacceptable.
0: Right, one in four. One
1: in four. Okay. And these are, you know, relatively young, quote-unquote, healthy, quote-unquote, able-bodied people who have their whole lives ahead of them, right? They come back from service and we're like, here's your GI Bill and here's this. You can go do something. Um, Which, if any post 11 veterans are hearing this, are probably scoffing at me <laughs> <laughs> so uh so that the lack of of research in that area combined with my experiences in the homeless clinic sorry i'm getting a little tangential here no this is great um, this is great so combine them working in the homeless clinic we you know there's all range of ages of veterans um but just naturally because of the demographics as i, I was there for almost four years we were getting more and more of these younger post 9 11 veterans and they looked, on the surface, totally healthy, obviously, right? You can't tell if somebody has PTSD by looking at them or a TBI or any other combination of things. And they were all, to some degree, food insecure, not just because they were homeless. Um, we throw a lot of resources at homelessness, as, and as well we should, um, but it's this almost this irony that because we focus so much on the homelessness and here's your benefit for this and here's your assistance with this, let's get you set up in housing, all these are great things. Um, we don't really address what they do once, the, once they get the keys and they get in there and they have to feed themselves. And some of these guys, I'm going to say guys because it's mostly guys, some of these guys, there are female veterans. Um, I'm going to generalize here and say the female veterans are a little more self-sufficient in terms of knowing what to do. Some of these guys have never cooked before. Um, But at the same time, they read all the same blogs, they see all the same stories, and they talk about wanting to get buff, and should I do keto, or should I do paleo, or what about this protein powder, and what about this testosterone powder, and you know, I spent a lot of my time dispelling myths and pleading with veterans not to spend money they didn't have on things they didn't need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I saw this huge gap in in education, a huge interest in nutrition. This is an, uh, a service era of veterans who are more interested in whatever you want to call it, holistic, integrative, complementary health modalities than any other era of veterans, and... They're just kind of grasping and wanting to know. So it was like I just thought, like, well, they want to know. They're food insecure. Um, what does food insecurity look like in this population? And the more I, this is this is more anecdotal. The more I started talking to them, um, you know, a lot of them are 100% service connected. They have money in their pocket. This isn't an issue of buying food.
0: Right, like you said back at the beginning, this isn't only about economics.
1: Some some of them, you know, you you might wonder, well, why is somebody who's 100% service-connected homeless? it's like, well, when the pain in your head, whether literal or existential, (laughs) um, is causing you to seek out substances, to not want to interact with anybody. I mean, all the classic PTSD, depression, anxiety, hyperarousal, all of these things... It it makes it really hard to buy food and the more I started reading about that is that a lot of veterans report It's a strange common experience where when they get back from deployment the first time they go into an American grocery store They lose it It's so bright There's that crazy music coming out of the speakers. There's a billion colors You have open entrances at either end of the aisle you're in. You don't know which way the exits are. It's not safe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's very triggering. Mm -hmm. And I've heard repeated stories of people saying, I go in, I just wanted a box of cereal, and I got to the cereal aisle, and I was like, F it, I'm out of here. And they just leave. So again, the money in their pocket is irrelevant. They're not buying food.
0: Right. So, And what are they doing instead?
1: So, I mean, it's a spectrum, right? So some people, again, I wish I had more data on this. They don't leave the house. You know, we live in an age where I can order anything I want to eat. Sure. And I don't even have to interact with a delivery person if I use something like (laughs) Amazon or something, right? I don't need to talk to people to eat. Or they just don't eat. Or they drink. Or they use drugs. Or all of the above, right? There's a lot of different Ways to not eat. <laughs> uh, we think of eating as such a biological need, and it is. But when you really examine it, we don't really eat just because we're hungry. We eat for a variety of reasons. And so that self-isolation, um, the depression, all of that, is my theory, is rendering all these veterans not engaging in life. And when you don't engage in life, you're not going to engage in feeding yourself. Um, again, that seems really obvious, but no one's really looked at that. Mm -hmm. So this is a very drawn out response to your question. But the more I thought about it, the more I started to view nutrition as because, um, you know, we're in the MIREC and because, um, you know, I'm in the physical medicine and rehabilitation division at the University of Colorado is to look at it as functioning. So when somebody has a visible physical injury, spinal cord injury, amputee, something like that. We have lots of occupational therapy to help them get things done. Tie your shoes, boil a pot of water. Um, We don't really address taking care of yourself nutritionally, period. Let alone from the mental health aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started to think of this not as food insecurity, but as nutritional functioning because food insecurity implies kind of a binary status. You either are or you're not, and that's not true. Um, And then functioning, I could view it as a spectrum that has different aspects to it. How do you function socially? For some people, food is really social and they hate eating alone. For some people, they don't care, and that's fine. (laughs) Uh, For some people, they love to cook. For some people, they want to cook, they don't know how, or they hate to cook. All of those are legitimate. It's just figuring out where they're at with that, and we don't do that currently. We we can figure out, are you able to dress yourself? Are you able to walk from here to your bed? Um, Are you able to do your laundry? Which are all really important. Um, But we don't really talk about like, do you know what to do when you're feeling really despondent? How to engage in self care that triggers the senses, so to speak. You know, Mm -hmm. food is very tied to senses. When you talk to people, like what's their favorite food or their favorite foods, flavor is rarely a part of it. It's often texture. Um, And so when you get people talking about that, they get really excited and they focus on something outside of themselves. And so I started to think of that as a means of getting people kind of in a rehabilitative setting to start thinking about nutrition. What do you like about food? This isn't about me telling you to like something or not like something. Um, For the record, every dietician will tell you that butternut squash is really nutritious. I think it's disgusting.
0: (laughs) Exactly. We all have personal preferences. We all have our personal things, and I will
1: not let it pass my lips. And so, um, and so so getting to that, instead of a didactic, like, I'm the expert, I'm going to tell you what to eat, approaching it is like, what does eating look like to you? Is it important to you? You don't have to care about eating. You don't have to love cooking. But what does it look like to you? Is there anything that you really like about food? Um, With the homeless veterans, I'd often, especially the older ones, I'd often start off with saying, like, what would your mom cook? Or your grandma? What would you grow up eating? Did you like it? Because maybe they don't. Maybe they associate it with really bad memories. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about, like, what does food look like to you now? And so really getting at, at all those different layers of functioning in terms of engaging socially, if that's what you want, being able to physically do with food what you want, being able to access it, and, of course, the money part.
0: Right. No, I, I really like that sort of uh, change in terminology to think about it as nutritional functioning. Mm-hmm. I think that helps people see it, like you said, as a spectrum and also something that we can uh, learn about and then hopefully uh, facilitate uh, improvement in. Right.
1: Right. No, it's, it's uh, you know, we talk a lot. There's, are you familiar with the five-a-day
0: no. <laughs> oh, Adam. Yeah, teach me. <laughs>
1: so dietitians, you know, it's eatright.org. Gets this like eat your five fruits and vegetables a day. Okay. Great advice. No one does it. Or a small portion of the population does. And every year you can find all these publications where they do all these assessments. They'll do assessments of... WIC recipients or children in elementary school schools or older retirees or whatever it is and it's always x percentage is not adhering to the five a day and it's the vast majority of people what do we do about that now i don't pretend to have the answers but telling people they should eat more or less of something has not worked
0: i see and so <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah and it's
1: right. and human nature so it's it's I would always tell the homeless veterans when I did counseling with them, it was like, my example was, I, I love candy, but I'm kind of indifferent towards jelly beans. I don't really love them. I don't really hate them. But if you, Adam, were like, you could never have jelly beans again. Like, well, you know what? I guess I'm going out and I'm buying like a five pound bag at Costco. Right. And just... that's my schedule today is sitting with this bag of jelly exactly. beans and eating. Because you told me I can't.
0: Except for the popcorn flavored ones, those. Oh yeah, no no, no, popcorn flavored (laughs) ones. No, no, no. no, no, no. Uh, um, That's yeah, that's really helpful. So you you mentioned that there are assessment tools and that there are ways people are approaching this issue. Talk to us a little bit about how the VA, as a system, is approaching it, and uh, also you know where you see it going and how we could improve.
1: So I see kind of two tracks here. Um, One is I can only speak for the dietitians here at the Denver VA because they're the ones that I know. But I do hear uh, from other dietitians nationwide and, and other VA facilities uh, that even though we're trained to have this very didactic eat this, don't eat that approach, they're already addressing food insecurity to the degree that they can So, pardon me. So they're already, you know, talking to a patient about like, where are you getting your food these days? And how are you? Do, you? do you know what to do with it? Is it meeting your needs? are you like how are you paying for your food like really getting into those questions that can be really uncomfortable there's a lot of stigma associated with food insecurity
0: obviously. yeah can we can we take that go into that a little bit more and then we'll come sure. back to that because sure. you mentioned this personal connection and how you know yeah. especially among veterans there could be some hesitancy well, there well
1: food is i mean you know it's such a like if i can't feed myself am i a failure as a as an adult as a human being You know, for people who are parents, especially, who struggle, it's like feeding your kid is like your one job. When you really boil it down, like you have one job to do, which is to keep your kid alive, and you're not able to feed them, that can easily, and often does, spiral into enormous stigma and shame. And it doesn't help that we, um, without getting too political, that, you know, historically we have viewed any kind of nutrition assistance as this temporary thing for people who can't hack it. Right? Mm-hmm. If they only went and out got a job, then they'd be able to feed their family like they're supposed to. So it's there's there's no connotation around food insecurity right now that isn't associated with failure. It isn't associated with you suck at life, basically. Yeah. Um so so of course anybody who is struggling with that is gonna be like, well I, I suck at life. I'm a failure. And then you have something like the veteran population, who are proud, who um, you know place a large emphasis on self-reliance and self-sufficiency. You know they take care of other people; they don't need people to take care of them. Right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the the mindset. And then, um, let's say you have a veteran living in Denver, full, fully employed, but the cost of living in Denver is such that after you pay rent, utilities. And gas, you have no money left for food, which happens all the time. Uh, so I really want to, would encourage people to push past this notion of food insecurity. Somebody who has no job, nowhere to live, nothing, just sitting in a cardboard box starving. You have lo- lots and lots and lots of people who are functionally food insecure, who are fully employed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's really hard to make ends meet. Um So I just actually recently saw, I don't know where the data came from, more grocery dollars are spent at dollar stores, like Dollar General, than are spent at places like Whole Foods. People are buying their food. You can buy food at the dollar stores. Have you ever seen the food there?
0: It's processed, packaged. It's it's food. It's
1: food. I would never say to somebody, you can't eat that. Of course, you you should eat whatever you can. Um, It's not fresh. It's not of nice quality, but it's still food. And so, that says something to me mm-hmm. that people are spending a lot of their money on food at, at at those kinds of places because that's what they can afford. So the stigma is huge. Um, you know, really, when you go through the literature, we don't call it food stamps anymore. We call it SNAP, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Food stamps has kind of a derogatory connotation to it. So when you talk to a veteran, especially a younger veteran, about where they're getting their food and how they're paying for it. It's really easy for them to bristle. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going on food stamps. What are you talking about? I'm not some like poor strung out unemployed, nothing right. These are their words. not mine. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I would never in any way relate my experiences to being anything like that because I have lived and continue to live a very privileged existence But even in grad school, when I was on a tight budget, you know, like grocery dollars matter. Absolutely.
0: And sometimes you're weighing some decisions. You know, am I getting this healthier version of food or am I putting it towards rent or how am I juggling this?
1: Yeah, all the time. And so, again, I'm not comparing myself to to people in acute need, but, you know, we're all doing the math. We're all doing the mental math at the grocery store. Um, And so, So that stigma is so huge. So when I saw that one study saying that 27% of OEF, OIF veterans are food insecure, my first thought was, well, those are just the ones who were
0: admitting to it. it." Right. Right.
1: And it all also falls into how the question is phrased. Because if I ask you, have you ever gone hungry? You might say, no, I've never gone hungry. Right? That's totally different from, have you ever really had to decide, like, what gets paid off first? the utility bill or the rent or getting dinner tonight. And maybe you didn't get dinner tonight and you ate crackers out of the cupboard. So no, you didn't go hungry.
0: Right. Big difference.
1: But that's food insecurity. Right. And so, so it's really, it's all about how you ask it. So because I like to bite off more than I can chew, I'm facing, I'm researching this population that is very sensitive to this stigma and it is a huge stigma. Um, which is why it really feeds into that horrible narrative of why are poor people so fat, which I hate, <laughs> which I'm constantly fighting against. Well, if if you're fat, then you're not food insecure. You should just not eat. You know, I've, I've heard that all the time. It sounds so crazy and cruel, but that's the age we live in. Um, so that that stigma is a huge part of it. Does that answer you have those Yes, that's
0: perfect. Questions. So, okay. which actually goes us back towards assessment because yes. asking the question and how you yes. ask it matters so much.
1: Yes. So, so, I can't speak to how all dietitians do it. More and more dietitians are aware that this is an issue, and it's up to them. There's no, there's no official guidelines for this. So, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics doesn't have official guidelines on how to approach food insecurity in a patient setting. That needs to change. Um, but in my own experience, you kind of gauge where that person's at and try to ask questions that lead them to the information you're trying to find out. And if it backfires, it backfires. Um, so that's one thing that I see is happening. Another one that I see is happening is that more and more VAs and other non-VA hospitals are starting food pantries. So instead of you're a veteran or you food insecure, you're a veteran or you food insecure, you, you take that screening aspect out of the equation and you have food pantries or food banks that come on a, every week, every other week basis, and veterans can all participate and get food. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another way to do it, where you're not screening for income or, you know, like, how poor really are you? Um, I'm going to give one, sorry, tangential example here. When I was at the Homeless domiciliary. If you were a veteran and you were a single person household, so it was just you, and let's say you have some kind of pension, whether it's service connection or whatever, it is so easy to not qualify for benefits. So the average benefit that those veterans were getting was $16 a month in SNAP benefits. What can I buy to eat for $16 in a month? So, so again, that, that to me points out more and more that the money issue isn't going to solve it. We should keep throwing money at it, but throwing money at it isn't going to solve it. So the food pantries, um, there's a push towards, they call it different things now, medically tailored meals or food prescriptions Where more and more hospitals. And some VAs are starting to do this, have basically, um, it's almost like a prescription. You're, you were admitted to the hospital, you're ready to leave today, here are the medications you need to take, and here's a box of food.
0: Fantastic. Yes,
1: these are the kinds of foods you need to be eating.
0: Right, break down some of those barriers.
1: Exactly, some of those barriers. And social workers, I, I wanna pay due diligence to, to shout out to social workers, they do a lot of that legwork, because the social worker is the one who will walk through the veteran into signing up for benefits, um, if they're willing to if they're willing to and if they're willing to admit that they need help, right? That's a huge one. The other part of that to answer your question is, so I'm a member of the National Ensuring Food Security Work Group. Um, So a few years ago, Congress asked the VA to address food insecurity in veterans. And there is now a screener question in CPRS, so in the medical charting system, it's in the same rubric um, as when they get screened for homelessness. And you would see it in primary care mostly I don't know if it's totally 100% rolled out, but most of the countries' VAs have them. It's been out for a year, and it captures some of it, but it really only captures. It's a one-question screener. It's not validated, unfortunately, and it only screens for your status for the previous three months. Um, the standard, by the way, is 12 months.
0: which we know things fluctuate over. Things fluctuate yeah.
1: right. So there's lots of studies of uh, families, especially if you're familiar with WIC with the Women infants and Children Program. Sure. So, so mothers get they're called vouchers to buy food with. Um, if the, if the, the food runs out before the end of the month, you're food insecure for one week out of the month.
0: (laughs) Right. Right? No, that's huge. That's very important to think about it.
1: While you're waiting for the beginning of the next month to get your next vouchers. And it's the same with all kinds of benefits where people, this isn't that it's poor planning on people's part. It's just that I can't buy enough fresh produce today to last me for a month because it's going to be rotten by the end of the month. Right. So why would I buy it? Um, So it's food insecurity it's not that it's cyclical, but it's, it's almost like a wave. People dip in and out, dip in and out, dip in and out. So uh-huh. if I catch you today and for the past three months things have been okay, then you're like, no, I'm not food insecure.
0: You're going to miss them. Then. But
1: four months ago, things were really bad. Right. right? And so, so that screener is there. We are gathering data on that. We still have a really long way to go. Um, if I were to summarize my response to your question, it would be like, we're waking up to it being a problem. And we're trying to figure out where we should put our resources, and we have not figured that out yet.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very helpful, thanks, <laughs> Diana. You're so, so, um, so just kind of thinking ahead. of um, yes. Where do you see this research going next? What are your sort of uh, next plans? A- and um, yeah, take yeah. us through that.
1: Sure. So I'm still, you know, I think about this all the time, probably too much. But I recently submitted a proposal to. Um, Operationalize, as it were, and really quantify nutritional functioning as a measurable outcome. So, I want to develop a measure of it. Mm. And the way that I'm going to start doing that is by going to veterans, specifically post 9 11 veterans who have polytrauma, so a TBI plus some other issue, and asking them these questions What's your relationship with food? What's this like for you? What's that like for you? Where do you do this? What do you do in this situation with food? Do you do you care about food? You don't have to. I always think of my best, one of my best friends in high school. Um, his favorite food was cherry Coke. And the first time he told that, I was like, that's not a food. Try again. He's like, no, it's cherry Coke. I'm like, I don't know if we can be friends, but I'll try. Um, some people don't care. You don't have to care. You don't have to be obsessive about it like me. You don't have to subscribe to 5 million cooking blogs this isn't about signaling how into food you are um i think because i think that's the flip side of it too we get really into this like well on food network they do this well on food network they have a budget so sure yeah um and so really asking that the qualitative questions and what i really want to do is map that onto what we know about functioning and rehab So we know that like physical things and environmental things and social things and individual things really impact that and mapping that out in terms of nutritional functioning so that I can create a measure like a survey. You know, we have all these different surveys for depression and loneliness and anxiety and social functioning um, and physical functioning. We don't really have one for nutrition.
0: Right. Well, you can see that we need to be able to measure validated ways in order to then move forward to improving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a huge learning curve for me, which is exciting because I've never developed a measure before. So I'm working with these mentors to figure out what what I need to do methodologically to make this sound and not just me pontificating about, well, I think it's important to address mental health, right? I need to have a validated tool. So that's a huge next step. Um, In addition to that, what I'm doing is... Uh, I'm doing qualitative research with OEF, oif veterans who are enrolled in a vocational horticulture program. So in 2014, Congress set aside money in the Farm Bill from that iteration, specifically to get veterans involved in agriculture. So our American farmers are getting older and retiring and or dying. We don't have enough farmers. So we still grow all this food. We don't have enough people to actually do it. It's hard work. Um, and a lot of younger veterans are discovering it as a way to find meaningful occupation that also suits their mental health needs. So I'm interviewing these participants. They're based here in Denver in this, this program where they're learning how to basically start their own farming or ag business. But I'm looking at how it impacts their uh, psychological functioning and their nutrition. So some of them, they just discovered they like getting in the dirt and growing things. And then along the way, it changes how they eat because mm. they're like, I've never actually eaten a beet before. I'm like, did you like it? Yeah. I'm like, That's awesome. Right. <laughs> right. So the, these things that, that they just hadn't thought about before. Um, and what I hear again and again from, from post nine 11 veterans is, and I'm not saying this is true for all of them at all. This is just the, the cohort I'm studying. They say, I can't sit in an office. I can't, like, work a cubicle job. I need to be doing something um, outside or physical or that I feel I'm really contributing to taking care of somebody. Uh, I think one veteran I interviewed really put it best. He said, we just want to be of service. Mm. And this feels like a way to be of service. And so you might think horticulture, farming, what does that have to do with food security? Well, they're all intertwined. And so I'm looking at that population to see what that does for them. And if it is something that really helps them therapeutically, what should we be doing more of then to kind of funnel veterans into those things?
0: Fascinating. Great work, Diana. Thank you. I am so glad that we got you on the show today. Um, And as we wind down, I just wanted to give you, uh, well, first of all, again, thank you. But second of all, just give you an opportunity to kind of give us any uh, closing thoughts um and then of course with the invitation to have you back on to keep us updated on how this work progresses
1: absolutely i'd be happy to i think um if you don't work with veterans if you're if you're a lay person or you work in a clinical setting where you don't have a lot of veterans um this applies to food insecurity doesn't look like anything in particular it doesn't look like a disheveled person who has gaunt cheeks (laughs) that's the stereotype um These are questions that any clinician can ask, a nurse can ask this, a physician can ask this, and the same rules in terms of compassion and approaching from a place of respect apply. You won't lose anything by asking, and even if the most you can do is refer them to a social worker um, or something like that to see if they qualify for any benefits, that's a start. Um, the other thing I would say is that if you work with populations who have mood disorders, especially depression and anxiety, ask them, what did they eat today? Did they like it? Was it satisfying? I don't think we ask enough about that. We just say, like, that was not healthy. Ding! <laughs> mm-hmm. You you fail. Um, I always joke, and everybody's tired of this joke. But I always joke that I never wanted to be the dialysis dietitian because they have to be on a very restricted diet for dialysis, and so the dietitian's whole job is "Don't eat that, don't eat that." I told you not to eat that. Did you eat that? Oh, I told you not to eat that. <laughs> and so I never want to be that dietitian. Um, it's, so, so really, if you work with a population that has mental health issues, I guarantee you that their relationship with food whatever it is could be better and it really just starts with that dialogue
0: that's a huge takeaway very thoughtful um, good food for thought uh, for those of us listening (laughs) yeah it's great so again thanks for being on Um, and uh, thank you all of our listeners for tuning in today we hope that you uh, took some nuggets of knowledge with you on your way and um, Please share this with your colleagues, tell a friend, Um, give us a review, and um, until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in veterans' mental health and suicide prevention.